You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts from around the world on the latest issues on human rights and humanitarian law. I'm Gabriel Stein. We're broadcasting from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. Today is the first in a series of podcasts we're excited about. We're calling it Human Rights and Blockchain. Over the next few weeks, we'll be taking an in-depth exploration of the potential uses of blockchain. Blockchain is the technology behind Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but in this series, we're exploring how it could potentially improve our enjoyment of human rights. First out of the block, no pun intended, is Walid al-Sakaf. He's a senior lecturer at Södertörn University in Stockholm, where he does research on media technology and blockchain. Enjoy. Walid, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm really fascinated to talk to you today about uh, blockchain technology, um, which many people may have not heard of, but they have heard of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, which um, is based on this blockchain technology. And uh, what I'd like to discuss with you today is potential implications and applications for human rights and other social change work going forward. And I know you've done a lot of work on this, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. But before we start, our general audience needs a bit of introduction into what blockchain technology is. So imagine I'm a five-year-old and you're trying to explain what it is. How would you describe it? Oh, okay. <laughs> that was an unexpected question. Um, I'd say it's uh, uh, your ability to save information without anyone being able to tamper with it. It's a place where uh, it is um, a shared uh, form of storage of data that is possible to look into and confirm and verify without anyone being able to alter it. And, and how does it work? Yeah, I mean, the uh, ultimate, let's say, the ultimate characteristics of immutability are guaranteed simply because what happens on the blockchain stays on the blockchain since it is distributed. So imagine that one day you have um, uh, the ability to record whatever happens in the day, and this information is stored on, let's say, uh, hypothetically, on a million pieces of uh, um, say not notebooks and these notebooks are distributed across the world and so everyone has a, a way to verify if the information is identical to the rest so it means effectively that the distributed nature of this mechanism uh, alongside the cryptography in it makes it possible to guarantee that uh, no one is going to, to control what is written there or modify it so this is what is uh, rather fascinating about this since we have all been used to legacy data systems where you have central authorities taking care of things. But in this case, uh, we have known, we actually do not need to trust in the various uh, nodes or holders of these, um, let's say, sorts of data centers because all of them are linked cryptographically and the math is what dictates everything. So it means that Technology itself uh, had a way of sorting how data is stored. All you need to do is run these nodes and uh, be part of this network. And then you are uh, only, you're strengthening the capacity of the network to be more, let's say, resilient. Uh, but you're equally more, uh, not used as a, trust, a trusted agent. It's rather that you're using your hardware to ensure that uh, the data is stored eff effectively and um, 
without any uh, ability to change it. So that's the basic uh, promise of blockchain. Does blockchain need to have a transaction in order to be blockchain? Well, the word transaction is basically the, um, I mean, the, uh, the phrase we use when we store data. So a transaction is a piece of information that ensures that something happened. And that's why it's, uh, it's called transaction mostly because it came from Bitcoin's original concept of, you know, exchanging money. But the idea behind transactions is that you store some value or uh, content of any value. It can be a, a record of uh, someone sending someone else some money, but it can equally be any form of data that you can imagine. So that's what the name uh, implies. Okay. So if we just take the money for a second, because that's maybe a bit yeah. easier for people to understand. Um, so we have these servers all over the world um, and they're all storing this blockchain. Yeah. I mean, a server is a bit of a big name. You can call it like a wallet, <laughs> like okay. a, a particular node. Yes. And, and they're physical computers and they're storing these databases. Yeah, I mean, so a copy of the exact, what we call often, we use the word ledger, a distributed ledger. A copy of it is stored on every single node of these uh, network, on the, on the network. Okay. And so if I give you $5 or five kroner, um, mm -hmm. that then is sent out, that transaction is then sent out to all of these nodes and there is an encryption um, some sort of mathematical calculation that they have to do. And then when 51% of those nodes solve that calculation, then it's firmly stored in the shared ledger and you can uh, never take it away? Well, yeah. I mean, basically what happens is that you have a miner. I mean, these are the names. Um, name mining means that the person who first guarantees or verifies a particular transaction. So the miner uh, gets to be the per person who records the transaction first and stores it on a block. It's, that's why it's called the blockchain. And where is so the miner? Is that... He is one of the nodes. So what happens here is that there are nodes that are mining, uh, meaning that they are the ones responsible for recording and verifying data on the network. And those, uh, the rest are basically uh, data storers. They mainly verify and store the information. So the miners are the ones who uh, are able to get Bitcoin running because they are the ones who get to uh, solve the mathematical problems that allow them to get a reward in return. Because what happens here is that if you have a transaction taking place, uh, the protocol of Bitcoin in this particular case allows uh, miners to get to know a particular, what we call a hash. So this hash is basically a code that uh, need, that miners need to guess. So the first person to guess the code correctly and would be the one who gets to write the next block. And so it, it happens to be that uh, right now, I believe it's about uh, one Bitcoin as a reward for every miner, uh, but then the reward may change over time. The idea is that the miners are the ones who record the data on the blockchain. And so once one particular miner has solved the issue and gets it, on the blockchain, uh, the other, the others, miners, uh, everyone else on the network will be able to confirm whether that person is indeed the one who solved it, and that's how it gets to increase what we call confirmation. So, one confirmation, two confirmation, etc. So these increase in 
in time. And so they ultimately arrived to full confirmations by the whole network. And so that's what happened. What the 51%, what we call the 51% attack is that what if we have one miner that solves it and, and the other miner also claiming that they solved it, in which case the confirmations go f continue. And then until you arrive to 51%, the one who gets the 51% confirmations is the one who gets awarded, uh, who is actually going to have the blockchain recorded in his name. So that's how it, it plays out. It's not easy, I understand, but it's, it's, it's more important that you get notion of immutability and how it works because I have a, done a workshop and we uh, spent at, at least two hours trying to, to get to illustrate how mining works. Okay. Um, so, but like you said, it takes away the middle person or it takes away the central yeah. entity and it's um, spreading that across um, numerous people. Um, Yes, exactly. computers. Um, so why is it potentially so revolutionary? It's because it's the first time ever that we can consider having a mutual, let's say, we can communicate with each other, send content with each other without re relying on a central authority. In the past, let's say, uh, let's take the example of Facebook. If you and imagine that there Facebook itself is a central authority. So what happens is that you put your own content on Facebook and then Facebook gets to refine the content, uh, extract the content, analyze the content, and then let's say bring in advertisers and the advertisers contact Facebook and then they get the targeted content and, and, and up this, the algorithm of Facebook connects advertisers with content providers which are like users like you and me. In which case, Facebook is the central authority. Everyone knows Facebook. Not they rely on Facebook because that's where they have the data. The thing is that with face with the blockchain technology, you don't have a Facebook. You don't have a central authority taking charge of content. So what happens is that the blockchain is distributed everywhere. So whenever you put in your own content, it's spread all over the network, and advertisers themselves also are spread all over the network. So what happens here is that if you put content there is no authority to take a commission or a fee from your advertising, so uh, from advertising revenues. So, for example, in this case, advertising revenue would go directly to the content provider. So you s eliminate the overhead fees for administration, accounting, all sorts of other central authority-related uh, expenses because this is all eliminated. What you have is everyone is a content provider. Anyone can be an advertiser. So they can communicate with each other directly without a central authority. So that's the promise. The thing is that it's not easy to visual, to um, comprehend how this would happen unless you begin to uh, learn about something called smart contracts. I don't know if you want to get into that, but that's really the core or let's say the um, ultimate uh, let's say promise or revolutionary thing without, within blockchains on top of uh, immutability and transparency. Yeah, let's let's talk let's talk about smart contracts and and what they are and um, why they're so important. Okay, good. So a smart contract is basically an agreement that you have between two users on the blockchain. So let's say uh, I uh, would uh, agree that I rent an apartment from you, and uh, if if it were to be like Airbnb, Airbnb is an authority that's central. So in this case, what we do is that we emulate Airbnb into a smart contract. So the smart contract is a piece of code that receives arguments, let's say from me as the individual who would like, uh, the renter, the one who would like to rent. 
So it would take a parameter from the renter, say I'd like to pay $500 per month and, and pay it to this another, another account who is also part of the smart contract and say the owner of the apartment. So the, the smart contract is a piece of code. So what happens is that it receives information of whether you have paid the rent. So every end of month, let's say you get to pay the rent through this smart contract, you send it over. If you haven't sent it in time, it actually makes sure that this is uh, embedded in the system. So it can, for example, link up, theoretically speaking, it can link up to the account of, uh, um, uh, to the apartment where you live and then lock the door, for example. So all of this would be done automatically without even having a central authority. It's all embedded in the code. So just that, like you can do it with rent, you can do it with insurance, you can do it with uh, finance, uh, you can um, have what we call uh, emulated escrow accounts where people can uh, uh, present, uh, let's say, submit money into an escrow account built on top of the smart contract. And then once a particular amount is reached, then this would be distributed in a, in a percentage, for example. All of this information can be embedded in smart contracts. So the, the idea here is that since it's a machine, whatever is written on the contract will be implemented uh, verbatim, I mean, in, literally. There is no human involved. That, on the one hand, it saves a lot of money because it means that there is no uh, overhead in terms of expenses and accounting, etc. But it's equally important to understand that if it's code, it's immutable and it's, it's going to be executed anyway. So you better be very careful of what you write in there. How come it's um, immutable? I mean, why can't the code be changed? It's because the smart contracts themselves, the program itself, is also written on the blockchain. So not only is it the data, it's also the code that's blocked, uh, that's uh, on the blockchain. So it means that the exact copy of the smart contract will be on every node. So it's not possible once it's uh, written. And, and there's no way to tamper with that? Yeah, it's because it's simply the same as with any other type of code that you uh, store on the blockchain. So you don't, we can't uh, remove a transaction and you can't remove a smart contract. And, and that's why it's amend only. If you, let's say, it's assuming that you had an error in a smart contract, a bug, and in which case you would actually have to update the smart contract and ensure that whoever is using the old smart contract gets to know that that smart contract is no longer valid. And so these are ways in which you can also, you cannot apply some code inside the smart contract in which, let's say, the originator of the smart contract the, would have inside the code itself a, a piece of information that if it receives a particular, uh, say, transaction from the owner, then the smart contract itself will be invalid, will no longer receive. So this is part of the code itself. So it becomes like a... Um, a piece of legislation, so, so to speak, that is impossible to amend or adjust or modify. So we end up having to create a whole new smart contract and then everyone would use that instead. So in a way, you're putting complete trust in the code and, and exactly. also the, the technology? Exactly. So it's, it's in that case, in that sense, it's what we call a positivist, is that you totally have full confidence in that uh, and machines and code will get it all sorted out. But eventually, if you, if you can think of it in, lo in the long term, it means that the, health, the human being who writes the code will be the one you, you are trusting. Right. 
Wow, there's so many ways to go with this now, but I, I, I want to swing back around to that, the potential downsides in a couple of minutes. But let's talk about the work that you're doing. You're exploring the potential applications of blockchain that intersect with social impact, including human rights. So, so what are you finding? Yeah, very interesting question. I mean, the idea behind this is that let's look into the aspects of blockchain that can help promote certain human rights. Um, so we looked into this and we found that there are a number of things such as transparency. Uh, once you have information on the blockchain, it's there forever to look at. So it means that it has a transparent layer that ensures no one is going to, um, let's say, uh, um, meddle with or uh, change or alter. So uh, in cases of corruption, for example, if you have all the records over there, then there's no way for governments to hide this information. It's out already. So in some sense, it promotes transparency in a, to the general public. So the more governments use the, these sort of forms of mutable data centers that are public, the more it creates a sense of empowerment for the general public because it uh, eliminates, um, uh, let's say, corruption or reduces corruption to some degree. Another aspect that we considered is that since money can be transferred across the world without any, uh, let's say, conditions or uh, restrictions. That means that you can immediately dispatch an amount to anyone around the world, assuming that, of course, everyone has a wallet on this network. And so this would help, for example, activists in times of danger, in times of crises, to get their amounts without having to think of, okay, I need to go to an exchange or I need to, to ask for permission from the government, etc. So... Equally, it, it's also powerful for any member of society who's, let's say anyone who's suffering from a particular disaster, a crisis, to immediately get the funds, immediately in the sense, depending on how fast this transaction goes. But can I just uh, jump rather in on, seam, seamlessly. Yes. Sorry, can I just jump in on that point? Um, but would, that need, would you need to have the, a cryptocurrency to be able to do that? Or can you do that with normal currencies, so-called normal currencies? No, I mean, so far, it's obviously this isn't a, we are hypothetically thinking of a world where everyone has a wallet. So they're all connected through cryptocurrencies. Um, so they have already established their own wallet. And so everyone would be uh, well in that position. That's where uh, the real value of blockchains or cryptocurrencies come. Uh, right now, as of today, this is, of course, not the case. Um, you need to actually convert your fiat or regular money to cryptocurrency. And this is done through exchanges. And depending on the fees that you pay, you have to get that across. But once you have the money in cryptocurrency, then you can easily transfer that to whoever you would like. All right, let's go in two directions now. Um, so one is, how far do you or away do you think we are from um, having these cryptocurrencies that are kind of everyone has a wallet? Well, it's, it's, it's still far away. Today, it's like people are still grappling with the notion of what this is about. And then there's quite a strong resistance by governments who think that this needs to be regulated. Um, and so uh, I would give it another 10 to 20 years <laughs> until it's become like the norm for people to exchange with these types of uh, transactions. Additionally, there's a technological uh, challenge because Scalability is one of the big issues, and in my paper, I, imply, I very explicitly explain that Bitcoin as it is today is not feasible if you were to use it for what we call uh, daily transactions or microtransactions, because they require speed. 
And today, a uh, transaction takes up to 10 minutes. I mean, in the best case scenario, it can take a few minutes. In the worst case, it can take days. So it means that there's still need to work on the technological layer. And so new news solutions and new ideas are emerging every day. Uh, but that uh, means that we'll have to, they'll have to, people will have to shift, sift through them and find what's more suitable, more practical. And so there's a legal challenge, there is a technological challenge, and then of course awareness and, and the culture of using cryptocurrencies needs to be, um, let's say, introduced. Uh, this concept needs to be introduced to the overall public. And then my second question related to that is that one of the issues is the exchanges, right? And you bring this up as well, that they, the exchanges, which uh, are the places where you take uh, a U.S. dollar or a Swedish kroner and buy the cryptocurrency, that those exchanges themselves have been hacked um, and some big hacks. And that's an issue, right? Yes, exactly. So, I mean, the hacks themselves are not uh, an indicator of the vulnerability of blockchain itself, because uh, you think of blockchain once you're already in the cryptocurrency world where, where you already have the, uh, let's say, uh, Bitcoins or Ethers, whatever cryptocurrency you have, in which case you don't have that vulnerability. But then you need to move from the fiat to the cryptocurrency world. So it, that's where you have the vulnerability. And it's mainly because of poor security considerations by the various exchanges, uh, lack of understanding of how to save or, or deal with the private data. So until we arrive to a, a world where there is really no need to use fiat. So you can buy a car with crypto, you can uh, rent a house with crypto, and you can do all the things in virtual currencies. Until then, you would still continue to have the vulnerability of exchanges. That being said, we've talked a lot about hypothetical here, but what are some concrete things that are being done today with this technology in the field of um, social change, human rights, etc.? Yeah, there are several examples of this. Uh, in the paper, I can describe, for example, one case where it's very evident that it's can be used in many developing countries, which is uh, ownership of land, real estate ownership. So oftentimes you get powerful individuals in some developing countries with power centers would seize land of the, the I mean, victims of regular citizens who have no power over them. So, and then they seize it and register it under their name in a blockchain enabled real estate system where uh, it's already been implemented in georgia the country georgia they've already established a system where real estate registration is already embedded in the blockchain so the moment you buy a land then it's on the blockchain the moment you sell it to someone else it goes on the blockchain so this information is saved and it's saved permanently so it means that there's no way for someone to claim the land being theirs because it's already uh, registered in, a, in this decentralized ledger. And even if the government itself collapses, you still have the decentralized ledger. It's like the ultimate way for people to feel relaxed. They can sleep at night. That's let one me, example. Let me just jump in. Um, this is a massive issue, land grabbing, yeah. where you know land is super important. And this has major impacts for the most vulnerable people, people who have less money and also indigenous people, not to mention the impact it has on the environment. So this is, this is yeah. potentially huge. Exactly. And, and another one that's also huge and it's uh, about affecting people's lives is the use of uh, smuggled drugs or uh, fake drugs. And so what happens that if you uh, go to the black market, you'll find so many different types of drugs that you may think that are effective and cheaper, but they end up to be being disastrous and harmful. So in many countries, um, these are not 
uh, possible to control because the government has, isn't really able to guarantee if this is fake or not. So what happens is that you can have an, a, a health record of all that's uh, an agree, agreement among, let's say, the pharmaceutical industry players to ensure that every single medicine uh, that has a particular code is on the blockchain. So you can easily check the uh, label and check the code and then run it through the scanner and see uh, if it's uh, really legitimate or not. And this is something that's already been, uh, I was in Vancouver last year and uh, one of the presentations was actually a, a potential practical implementation of this for a number of pharmaceutical companies. So this would effectively ease, uh, be able to limit smuggling of uh, medicine and fake medicine fraud in the pharmaceutical industry, which would uh, save a lot of lives and reduce the victims that are uh, being abused uh, as we speak. So that's just another uh, example of how we call it tracking the supply chain, how we can ensure that the data on various types of uh, products is in fact verified or confirmed or validated through this immutable global universal ledger. So it makes it really powerful for people to, to use. We, uh, we have been very active for years in the field of justice. Fair and efficient justice is one of our focus areas. And we do trainings and workshops and capacity building around the world for court clerks and judges and prosecutors. Um, I'm curious, you, you discussed crowd jury here a little bit. And, and yeah. uh, that sounds very, very interesting. Can you go into that a bit? Oh, yes. I mean, the idea is that there might be a time when you have uh, the actual work on, let's say, legislation on the blockchain itself, understanding what what can you use if you get, let's say, a parameter. Let's say you have uh, two uh, parties. They have a conflict and they have some data that you can feed into a, a smart contract and it will give you a result. This is automating the process of judging. This is one thing. Another thing is that you can use uh, the blockchain as a mechanism of consensus. So we bring in uh, the uh, cases and then uh, members on the network can uh, either vote or look into this based on how, how uh, rational or their own understanding of how the case should be and the result would be. And then eventually we'd come to a point where you, there's a majority. Uh, voting in one direction and based on these particular facts. So this is all still hypothetical, but it's uh, an example of how uh, smart contracts and mutable data would guarantee to some degree or ensure and improve the level of uh, uh, anti-resistant, uh, let's say fraud resistance and the abuse of power, whether it's um, judges or uh, government officials or um, criminals, whoever is being involved in this, Data is so transparent and so open and possible to match and ensure that everyone is aware of, in which case it can lead to better judgments overall. So I know there are some downsides as well. What are the big issues right now, do you think? Well, I mean, the biggest downside is that there is potential for this to be used by criminals. And we've had this discussion before <laughs> when the internet itself started. Uh, you remember the days of Napster. You know, I mean, there are cases where there was copyrights violations. And so, I mean, there is potential for it to be used to um, achieve um, illegal ends. And uh, not far back, you may recall the uh, 
cases where you have the ransomware that's spread out in many different uh, sectors and the culprits behind this actually are called for remittances to be made in Bitcoin. So it's a way to somewhat, not totally anonymize, but you can send in for and um, send your uh, money across to a Bitcoin account. And that address may be by, owned by someone whom, whom you don't know and how no one knows because uh, Bitcoin allows uh, anonymous addresses. It doesn't associate a name to a particular address. So the under, uh, let's say, dark market, the um, Silk Road-like, uh, let's say, transactions that may take place on uh, using these types of cryptocurrencies um, is one downside. Um, the way to deal with it, in my opinion, is not regulation. It's more to do with understanding the risks being involved, not to be a victim yourself. And, and this is going to take a long time. Uh, would you say that blockchain could easily be explained considering like peer-to-peer technology like Napster? I mean, it's a bit of a fallacy to bring it back to Napster. I mean, peer-to-peer is just simple, one simple, let's say, characteristic of the blockchain. But unlike Napster, in Napster, you don't necessarily guarantee if the data on it is legal or uh, it's valid or not. Uh, what What is good about blockchain is that you have the element of verifiability. Uh, not only are you peer-to-peer, but you also can confirm and validate the information on this network. That means that effectively you can uh, guarantee the security of the data. And the on, confirming... On it's totally opposite. Right. And the confirmation is, is the different nodes doing the um, crypto... Uh, it... Yes. Yeah, so anything on uh, the blockchain is already confirmed. So it's confirmed by all these uh, 51% plus. Uh, unlike the case in a Napster environment where you have just one file that's been copied over, but you don't, this can be a virus, it can be a malware, it can be all sorts of uh, information, but no one will be able to tell you exactly what it might contain. Additionally, of course, it doesn't necessitate that it's shared by everyone. A small group can actually be the ones that hold this information. It can be peer-to-peer, it can be three-to-one, but eventually, uh, the data there is not at all verifiable. Hmm. I've also read a bit about voting and how that could be a potential uh, application for the blockchain. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, this is still quite early, and it's in one of the early stages, that idea of uh, making sure that there is no central uh, authority that could uh, defraud a particular vote. And that means that uh, you will have to embed um, a very strong personal information, let's say, protection on the blockchain. The issue with that, and that might be another uh, example of a vulnerability, or let's say downside, is that blockchain has been built on so much transparency that the idea of bringing in privacy uh, or private data, let's say hidden encrypted data on the blockchain is a bit challenging uh, because uh, you need to know the data so to confirm it. So the moment that you put in information that no one can read, and see because it's private. That moment is then uh, brings in a, a new challenge to the blockchain. It comes to the it's to, contrary to the belief system of a blockchain. So you end up having to rely on legacy uh, solutions for that. 
And when you say legacy, you mean uh, uh, a different uh, platform, basically. Yeah, I mean, the, the old, I mean you, need, you end up having to, let's say, connect to a regular authority for verifying personal information that's saved on the blockchain, for example. Hmm. Um, then you bring us back to square one. So it's still early in that respect, but these are all attempts to find solutions. Hmm. And how could potentially an individual be, their identity be stored in the blockchain? Well, um, and there are main, um, mainly a few projects that are trying to work on this. Among the ideas that you'll have your data stored on your own computer. And so this data will have to be verified, let's say verifiable data, like uh, in Sweden we have bank ID, which basically is a way for you to verify your identity through the bank, through your own bank. So this information will be on your computer and not put on the blockchain at all. What you'll put on the blockchain is a hash or a key that corresponds to the, the, the identity, your identity. So it proves that you are the one that owns that account, in which case you can then pursue your whatever it is. It might be voting, it might be any other form of transaction. Uh, but eventually the promise that blockchain technology will not have you, force you to store your data, your private data on the blockchain itself, but rather connect you to the blockchain by confirming it uh, through the data that's on your computer. So that's where the challenge is. Uh, you come from Yemen uh, and you've been an internet rights advocate for a long time. Can you talk about the potential uh, for blockchain to kind of circumvent um, censorship by governments? Yes, indeed. I mean, one area that's been uh, explored recently is uh, using what we call the uh, web, the new web or blockchain enabled web. So the idea behind it is that just like you have blockchain I and mean, Bitcoin as a way to distribute transactions, you can have the blockchain used to distribute data. So web pages, for example, need not to be on a central website. They can have caches or copies of it can be distributed across various servers around the world. And these caches can have their own transactions, keys. And these keys can then be stored on, on a blockchain like Ethereum. For example, there is a, the interplanetary file system, IPFS. They're working on a way to create what they call the sensor-resistant web, in which case you can actually have data stored on, on in some way as if you're uploading your data and having its hash stored on the blockchain. But equally, any, anyone uh, who has the hash can find a way to access your data. You don't need, if, if your server is offline, if it's censored, then you have the information stored elsewhere. So you keep on finding new and new copies of the same data. So in that sense, blockchain can enable uh, and freedom of expression and uh, a censorship-free web. Uh, additionally, you can use the blockchain to, uh, as I said earlier, communicate with uh, I mean, send and transact, or send uh, donations to uh, victims or human rights activists in remote parts of Yemen. If they have, let's say, if they were to need a particular amount to save a life or to uh, get something done on the ground very quickly, then this this uh, money can be sent across to the country without need, the need to worry about the borderline or the authorities uh, taking charge or taking that money. So that, I mean, it's still early for this, that case, but these are some examples of what you can do.
So where are we headed? Do you think that this is going to um, really change things in, in many different industries and in many different areas? I believe so. I mean, there are some areas that are of a government concern, uh, so, such as trying to ensure that legislation is in place to control who sends money or receives money. But even the governments themselves realize that they may actually benefit from these sorts of technologies to in, enhance their own services. I'll give you the example. I mean, you've seen the example of real estate protection because the governments don't want people to complain that their lands were grabbed. <laughs> so the government itself has an incentive to build a system that is proof, uh, let's say, I mean, uh, and let's say fraud, uh, fraud resistance, resistant. But equally, they also can use it to make uh, um, expenses lower for their own staff. They can reduce the cost of administration by setting up blockchains to ensure that data is protected and safe and used in a transparent way. Um, there are uh, different types of blockchain. Not all of them are public, so you can have permissioned and private blockchains, in which case governments can use them for their own good, for their own, uh, within their own scope. And so the use of blockchains, in my opinion, is going to shoot up, it will continue and it will rise. The only concern, uh, the only, uh, say, um, problem that might occur is the, the amount of cryptocurrencies that would uh, increase in time over time and people would fall to scams and fall to various other say cases where they lose money and then blo blame the blockchain which has nothing to do with that and so it means that there will need to be more awareness of the public to understand that uh, this is not a let's say a get-rich-quick scheme and it's also not only cryptocurrencies, it's much beyond that. So there is going to be a learning curve. There's going to be a lot of momentum going forward, ups and downs, but there's no doubt that it's going to grow. Walid Al-Sakaf is a senior lecturer at Sudetern University in Stockholm, where he does research on media technology and blockchain. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain all of this to us today. A pleasure. Stay tuned for more in this series on human rights and blockchain. During the next few weeks, we'll be interviewing others who are exploring blockchain. You can go to our website to find a full transcript of this interview. And while you're there, why don't you sign up for our newsletter?